Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, y'all. This is Jen from the Popcorn and Pod People podcast, and you're listening to one of my favorite podcasts, History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 206th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are bringing you some haunted cemeteries. You guys have been asking for them, and so we're going to be bringing them to you. We are going to be joined in a little bit by two guests. First off, we'll have writer Owl going back join us. He's going to share his experiences at two cemeteries here in Florida, Greenwood Cemetery in Orlando and the Tolomato Cemetery in one of our favorite cities, St. Augustine. And then tour guide and podcaster Mike Brown, who hosts Pleasing Terrors podcast, will be joining us to share the history and hauntings of the Unitarian Cemetery in Charleston, South Carolina. And finally, to round out the episode, Denise and I will be sharing the history and hauntings of Bachelors Grove Cemetery in Cook County, Illinois. Denise, we want to thank the fine folks over at Popcorn and Pod People podcast for our intro there. Because who doesn't like popcorn and pod people? I love them both, so I'm good to go. Absolutely. It's a brand new podcast out there. They feature some of the old horror and science fiction movies that would be like from our youth, Denise. So we're talking back in the 70s, that kind of thing. I was already like a decade old. Thank you. So if you need something new to put in your ears, I would suggest you check them out. I also have been listening to, and when I say listening, I mean binging like crazy, The Conspirators Podcast, another excellent one. It's along the lines of pleasing terrors and deals with a lot of mysteries and oddities and things of that nature. So I think you'll enjoy that as well. And if you are a podcaster out there and you'd like to send us a little intro, we'd love to play it for you. And we'd send you one in return as well. Give us a little bit of variety for our intros there. Also, to our executive producers, if you guys would like to send us in a little intro bumper, we'd love to have that as well. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Stacy with an I. Hey, Stacy with an I. Heather. Hi, Heather. Jaina. Hello, Jaina. Jason. Hey, Jason. Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Katie with a Y. Hey, Katie with a Y. Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. Ambi. It's almost like Bambi, but no B at the beginning. Hello, Ambi. That's like Bambi, but with no B. (laughs) And Montana, who spells her name with two N's. Hello, Montana, who is not like the state, but like yourself. (laughs) Great, Denise. That was fabulous. Thank you. And now, this moment in oddity.
A doctor named F. Bruce Russell claimed that he and a friend named Dr. Daniel S. Bovee discovered a series of complex tunnels deep below Death Valley in 1931, and what they found in those tunnels was amazing. The men had been trying to do some mining in the area, and while sinking a shaft, Dr. Russell fell into a cave after the soil gave way. He found himself in the middle of a catacomb of tunnels leading off into different directions. The two men decided to explore the tunnels and eventually found the mummified remains of three large men. They measured between eight and nine feet. The mummies were dressed in medium-length jackets and trousers that reached just below their knees. So it was as if these giants were wearing the clothes of normal-sized men. The material was unidentifiable, and the two doctors claimed that it was similar to sheepskin, but came from an unknown animal, perhaps an animal that was extinct. The burial room held a number of artifacts that appeared to be Egyptian and Native American in design. Hieroglyphics were chiseled on carefully polished granite. Other rooms in the caverns held other artifacts. The two men said that there were approximately 32 tunnels running across 180 square miles of Death Valley. No scientist or archaeologist believed the claims. Dr. Russell recruited a group of investors and formed Amazing Explorations, Inc., Unfortunately, by the time he got back out to the find, the sands had shifted and he could no longer find the site. Dr. Russell disappeared shortly thereafter. His car was found abandoned with a burst radiator in a remote area of Death Valley. His suitcase was still in the car. Was this find a hoax? If it was true, it was strange, but the disappearance of Dr. Russell makes this even more odd. This is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history. In the month of June on the 25th in 1950, communist forces from North Korea invaded South Korea, touching off the Korean War. Korea had been divided after World War II. Russia took over North Korea and transformed it into a communist regime, while the United States took South Korea under its wing. After the invasion, the U.S. quickly put forward a resolution at the United Nations calling for a military response. The vote went forward and President Truman quickly put American military forces into action. China stepped in to protect North Korea. What would follow would be a frustrating three-year war that would end with the United States not gaining a victory. A ceasefire was signed and the two parts of Korea remain separate today. 55,000 American troops were killed and many think of this war as America's forgotten war. Cemeteries are the final resting places for most of us in this journey called life. While some fear cemeteries because these places remind them of their own impending end, for others they are a place of respite and peace. The birds sing among the branches of trees growing freely in the safety of an area that will not be built upon. In the south, massive oaks covered in Spanish moss thrust upward among the tombstones, mausoleums, and gates. 
In the north, a cemetery will be cloaked in the white beauty of snow in the winter. Most cemeteries hold bodies, but not spirits. Occasionally, though, there is a cemetery where a spirit or two is at unrest. Some stories have claims of portals or stairs to hell. Others have tales of bizarre creatures lurking in the shadows. On this episode, we're going to begin our series on haunted cemeteries. Writer Owl Going Back joins us. He has served as a jet engine mechanic in the Air Force, and he has written numerous novels, children's books, short stories, magazine article scripts, and now comic books. His novel, Crota, won the 1996 Bram Stoker Award for Best First Novel. He's going to join us to discuss a couple of haunted cemeteries here in Florida, Tolomato Cemetery in St. Augustine and Greenwood Cemetery in Orlando. How are you, Owl? I'm doing very good. How about you? We are fabulous. What I thought we could do is have you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself, some stuff that I didn't already cover, and I would love to know the meaning of your name. Al Goingback is a Cherokee Choctaw name. I was actually named after an ancestor. These people, when they ask me what tribe I am, I tell them I'm uh, urban Indian, I'm Smackaho, and they might know our leader, Chief Spread Eagle. Uh, Christmas time, I tell my sons that I'm Cheapasaw. So, yeah, I have fun with it. But it gets a lot of attention, especially when it's on a book cover. As for myself, I've been uh, writing probably a little over 30 years, which means I'm old as dirt. I, I started around 1985, and I started writing because uh, my wife called me stupid one night. This is after I had gotten out of the military, and I owned a bar across the highway from the main gate of the base where I was last stationed. And one night after work, uh, we were watching a Stephen King interview. And during the interview, my wife turns to me and says, why can't you be smart like him instead of so stupid? And, of course, that male ego thing got a little wounded. So the next day I sat down and started writing. And you write about what you know. So I wrote a a martial arts article for a a martial arts magazine, a self-defense article. And it sold. I said, well, this has got to be beginner's luck. I said, I'll write one more. If the second one sells, I'll keep writing. And if it's doesn't sell, then I'll give up. Well, the second one also sold. So I switched from martial arts into fiction. And it was almost 10 years to the day of being called stupid by my wife that I was up against Stephen King for Best Novel of the Year for Stoker Award. Oh, that is super, super cool. So you kind of got my ears perked up at the martial art reference. And so what martial art did you study? I'm kind of going back back a little bit, and then we'll talk about your writing. I studied uh, Taekwondo and Hapkido and a little bit of Arnice. Uh, I had to give it up when I got injured, and I was actually injured by a chiropractor. I had gone to him with a stiff neck after a class the following day, and he adjusted my back, and I couldn't raise my left arm for three years. Uh, He pinched a nerve. I had muscle deterioration, and I've been in pain ever since. But I uh, gave the knowledge uh, through continued by by writing about it. Also, I worked with my sons, and they both have a black belts in several different styles. Okay, very cool. I don't know if you know or not, but I also have a Taekwondo background as well. So it was it was just kind of perked my ears up that you were writing for a martial art magazine. Would that have been Taekwondo Times? Taekwondo Times back in the day. And I also wrote for Black Belt Magazine. I I wrote under various pseudonyms because I didn't think they'd buy anything from somebody named Owl going back. I would always do like having a bar. I was doing like practical self-defense techniques and uh, articles. Like what would you do in a situation than when you're not in a wide open uh, dojo? I mean, it's a little bit different when you got to fight around pool tables and people and and crowded areas and bar stools. And you got to develop different techniques. Okay. As I was perusing the novels that you've written, it would seem that you like to uh, specialize in the area of science fiction, fantasy, and the horror genres. What made you decide to go down that path? 
Well, it's kind of like, that's what I read as a kid uh, growing up. I really love people like Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and Andre Norton and Ray Bradbury. And so they were kind of an inspiration for me. I, I grew up in a small rural area. I had no uh, playmates. I was an only child. So basically, uh, to keep saying, I read a lot. I was also influenced by a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland, which uh, I bought first time when, at the age of nine, because the first allowance I ever got was 50 cents. And I saw this magazine with werewolves on it. And I said, oh, that's for me. Mm -hmm. so I was a monster kid. I'm, I'm still a monster kid. I still got my walls covered with weird things. But it, what's been fascinating is a lot of the people who were heroes to me as a child and who were you know, still alive at the time, I got to meet. I'm, I've met Andre Norton. I've met Ray Bradbury. I've met Forrest Ackerman. And I became friends with quite a few of them. That is awesome. Now you're kind of stuck your toes out there into the comic book world. And I have to tell you, between Marvel and DC, and I'll probably anger some of our listeners, I'm a DC girl. So I was thrilled <laughs> to see that you were writing, is it a Poison Ivy story? I just sold uh, the first one to DC. It was a Poison Ivy story. It is for their new uh, new talent anthology. Uh, what happened, I was one of eight writers out of over 1,500 applicants that were picked for their uh, talent development workshop, which was a three-month course online. Like Bailey told us up front, we, well, we picked you guys because we want you to write for us. And I've turned in several scripts, but the Poison Ivy one is the one that's going to come out first. And I've already seen the early preliminary sketches by the artists, and, and they're wonderful. These guys are doing a great job, and I'm just thrilled about it. In fact, I got, I got the check in the bank today, so I can officially say I'm a professional comic book writer, along with being a novelist and everything else. Well, congratulations. That is amazing. I'm thrilled for you. I was saying it was fun because, you know, I, I was a comic book fan when I was young, too, so... It, to me, writing is all about proving myself. So I jump around in different genres and different areas just to see if I can do it. And it's, it's kind of my way of paying back what I loved as a child growing up. Now I'm just kind of paying it forward to the next generation. We're going to be talking about some hauntings that go on in cemeteries. So I thought it would be kind of fun to get your perspective on the supernatural and from your background. What are your beliefs when it comes to the supernatural and specifically what we tend to call ghosts? Well, with the Native Americans, we have a strong belief in spirits. I mean, this is something I was always taught as a child growing up. You know, when you cross over and go into the next world, uh, we don't think we go that far. I mean, you know, I mean, we believe in spirits. We also believe in the spirits can come back and, and visit the families or even come back as spirit guides and help uh, guide members of the family. It, the thought of crossing over, of dying and becoming a spirit and going to some far off place called heaven and never, ever being allowed to come back and see your family or, or check up on them or see how they're doing. That's just a ter terrible thought to me. I mean, that wouldn't be like a reward to me. That'd be punishment. I mean, you want to be around the people that, uh, that you love, whether you're in the physical form or whether you're spiritual form. So yeah, Native people have a very strong belief in spirits, and it's just something I was raised with. Now, you worked at Greenwood Cemetery, correct? I worked at Greenwood Cemetery for about seven and a half years, and that's Orlando's probably largest cemetery in the city area. It's, uh, it's owned by the city of Orlando. It's a uh, Right at 100 acres, it dates back to 1880. city took it over in 1890, and there's between 65,000 to 80,000 burials there. Wow, that is a lot of burials. Oh, my goodness. 
it's a ton, ton of barrels. The reason we're not 100% sure on, on the, the count, because they did have a couple of pauper sections where they didn't keep good records when they buried the poor people. And also, when Greenwood became an official city cemetery, they closed the other cemeteries in the city limits and moved the bodies to Greenwood. And those bodies, many of them don't have headstones. So we don't have complete records on those people. And they still do burials at this cemetery, is that correct? Yes, yeah, every day. I mean, it's pretty much, you know, a, a daily thing. I mean, I've, I've put thousands of people in the ground. I, I tease people that I've, you know, I'm a, I put more white men in the ground in the sitting bull, and I'm a mighty warrior because of it. But yeah, it's it's constantly constant burials on a daily basis, and we still got property and plenty of room. So there'll be thousands more people buried there before they run out of space. So you worked there for seven years, and when you say you put that many people into the ground, what exactly did you do there? I was uh, the caretaker. I was the only full-time employee. And what I would do is I would mark the location for burials, making sure that you're not putting them in the ground where somebody's already at. I would also mark for headstones. I'd oversee uh, the care of the landscaping, throwing sod, just pretty much everything had to be done. Uh, I didn't do the actual digging. We had a, a contractor come in that would dig with a backhoe. But I would assist a digger and help them out with possible, you know, making sure they can get to the location without damaging things. I did irrigation work. I've even dug up a few bodies that have been in the ground because families sometimes want to move them. And in your time when you were there, did you experience anything or did you hear stories from other people from experiences that they had had there that they couldn't explain? Uh, both. Yeah, I've had experiences where we I've seen things uh, where I've heard uh, footsteps, doors opening. Sometimes pr- pranks be played on us. Those who don't believe become believers after being there a while. One of the most memorable cases was I was sitting on, on a little cart I had, John Deere Gator, and I was taking my lunch and I out of the corner of my mom, a peripheral, I saw a man walking straight at me at a, at a strong walk, very angry. And it startled me. I turned my head and looked directly at him, and then he was gone. So I was like, whoa, okay, I really just saw that, but I don't know who it was, but they weren't happy about him being under that tree in that area, obviously. Wow. Did you see what he was wearing or anything like that? Just saw pants and clothes. I was more focused on the face. I mean, when you see somebody, when you're, you know, you're not paying attention and somebody's walking up like they look like they're going to clock you, it gets your attention in a hurry. My wife and I experienced somebody sneezing behind us who wasn't there. Cold spots were common. I've caught uh, strange mist on cameras. I mean, yeah, all the time. One time I was there early in the morning and I heard the, the door open and footsteps come down the hallway. I stepped out to see who it was and there's nobody around. And you're going, well, okay, that was clear as a bell. But that's a common thing. I mean, a lot of people who work there experience that. There was a section that the previous caretaker didn't like to go into because he was working one day and somebody tapped him on the shoulder. And he actually refused to go to that section by himself. Don't blame him. <laughs> I would be a little bit <laughs> nervous, too, if somebody's tapping me on the shoulder. <laughs> wow, I can't believe, you know, most people to see a full-bodied apparition is pretty unique. And then to have it coming at you in an angry way, that... Uh... I'd be a little bit worried and scared, too. Well, the, where it happened was in the old section, which was in A, and there's a, there's a stone there for a man who was Orlando's first photographer. One year, his wife died. The following year, his daughter was murdered. And uh, a lot of people have said they've seen a figure in that area. Uh, there was another 
in that same area, there's uh, the mausoleum for a gentleman with the last name Week, and he was uh, basically came down to Orlando. He was an English man, and he bought some property, some land, and they were burning brush at the time. So it was all smoky. He didn't get a good look at it. When the smoke cleared, he realized he had bought swamp land. It was useless. So he bought a uh, space in Greenwood, right by the front gate, put up a headstone for himself, and did a quote from the Bible about a man going down to Jericho and falling among thieves, and he named the people who sold him this property. Well, that was a big hoop to do because they were prominent businessmen in the Orlando area. So they basically bought that space from him, giving him his money back on the property, and it removed the headstone, said it wasn't slanderous. Well, he obviously wasn't done feuding with them or was still angry because when he built the mausoleum, he had the same inscription carved on the door with the names. And after he had died, somebody came along and chiseled the names off so you couldn't see them anymore. Oh, wow. That... <laughs> That is very interesting, especially if you think that they were chiseling off the names, you're defacing a tombstone there, and you're yeah, asking they, for they, trouble in more than one way. Exactly, and he took that, that fight to his grave because he's in there by himself. His wife's not buried with him, and a lot of people report seeing things around that area. So, I, you know, if, if spirits don't move on because you're angry, then he's still hanging around the place. So did you decide that you just didn't want to work there anymore, or you just, you'd gotten into the writing, so you didn't really need to work there anymore? It had been long enough. I, I got the job because the Sexton was a fan of my novels. And he basically said, how would you like to, you know, work in a graveyard during the day and write horror novels at night? I said, you might get some inspiration for your work. I said, fantastic. And it's a government job. And it had good health care, good benefits. So I, I did it for seven and a half years. But then the economy picked up again and books were selling. Because when I started it, uh, you know, I saw a lot of publishers going out of business. A lot of bookstores are closing. I just, I like that secure paycheck. I like knowing that I'm going to eat and have a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. Now I'm back to writing full time, so it was time to move on. Now, the sexton that is there, he gives like moonlight tours once a month. Is that correct? He does. Once a month, they do a moonlight history tour. It's on the Friday closest to the full moon. The tour is free. You've got to go online and register and get your little printout ticket. And when when they open up this thing, it sells out in a matter of minutes because it is very popular. And 70 tickets will go in about three minutes' time. But, you know, that gives a history of the cemetery and the history of Orlando. I mean, Greenwood has got the who's who of Orlando buried there. It's got all, all former mayors and people who have streets named after them. They're buried there. So it's, it's very fascinating the history of their place. Does he entertain ghost stories at all? Not usually. He has. I mean, one time in conjunction with the International Conference on the Fantastic and and the art. We had a special uh, tour. It was a history and haunting tour. He did the history aspect. I told the ghost stories. And we bust in two busloads of writers and scholars who were at this conference. And we had a wine and cheese reception at night in the cemetery with the tour. Oh, that sounds like a fabulous time. How great. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of it was, fun. It was, it was well received. And it's really nice out here at night, especially when, when the full moon, because the, the glow of the moon reflects off the headstone and it looks like the whole thing's alive. Everything's glowing. It's beautiful out here at night. A couple of the famous people at Greenwood Cemetery include a man by the name of Buell Duncan, and he headed up SunTrust Bank back in the 1990s. He lived from 1928 to 2010, and he was on the banking team that courted the Walt Disney Company in the 1960s, Denise. And so it said, if it wasn't for this man, there might not actually be a Walt Disney World. Oh, no, that would be horrible because I wouldn't have a job. Absolutely. So we're glad that Duncan got them to come on in and financed all of Walt's dreams there. And kind of a fun fact is um, Duncan was born in 1928, which is the same year that a very beloved mouse was born. Would that be Mickey? It would. 
Nearby to him is the burial plot of Allie Boo Dixon. Dixon invented the reflector scene on most major highways and streets. They're known as Dixon Highway Safety Markers. In the 1940s, Dixon installed 268 markers along Orange Avenue near Ivanhoe Village in Winter Park, which Denise and I know, some of you who are not from Florida wouldn't know, but I thought that's really cool. This is somebody who made up those safety markers that everybody sees. Which I love reflectors so much better than streetlights. You can't have them up north because they have to plow for snow. But man, do they make a huge difference because you can tell exactly where the lines are on the road. And yeah, they make a big difference. And one of the reasons why he's buried here in Greenwood Cemetery is the city couldn't afford to pay him for the reflectors that he made for them. So they gave him several plots in the cemetery. And his epitaph reads, the light shineth. Oh, that's cute. What a trade. I mean, I've been in trade type jobs before where I could trade you know, massage for dog grooming, for my hairstylist or whatever you might have. But trading something for a grave plot, that's kind of unique. Now, last year, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. So I know we've got a lot of fans out there in our listenership. Do any of you know the name Joe Tinker? He is a Hall of Fame Chicago Cubs shortstop, and he died in Orlando. So he's buried there at Greenwood Cemetery. And Francis Eppes, who is the grandson of Thomas Jefferson and founder of what became Florida State University is also buried at this cemetery. So those are a few of the famous names there. Well, and it is a beautiful cemetery. I mean, it's a garden cemetery. It's got, of course, the big live oaks that we have down here in the south with your Spanish moss hanging everywhere. It's just beautiful. And it's got all of the unique headstones. I don't like the way some of these uh, modern day graveyards are going where it's the flat stones and there's not a lot of unique right. <laughs> stuff out there. So it's it's a beautiful cemetery. We love it. Yeah, the flat stone is basically for the cemeteries that are memorial parks, and it makes it easier for the mowers. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the one thing you always got to watch out for. If you guys riding on mower at high speed down uh, down a row between the headstones, there's a chance you might hit something or knock something over. So a lot of places uh, for convenience, you know, of maintenance and, and care, they go with the flat stones. One of our favorite cities of anywhere, but especially because it's right here in Florida where we live, is St. Augustine. I, I get a feeling that you love it, too. I love St. Augustine, and my novel Breed is set in St. Augustine, and the main character is a ghost tour guide. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason is I, I started going to St. Augustine just because of history, and they have, they have the ghost tours there, which are always fun. But one night I was on the, I was walking around with my wife, and I went to the Talamado Cemetery, and the business next door had left their gates open. So it gave me access to the backside of the Talamado. And this was around midnight, and I was using a 35-millimeter camera and with a flash, and I stuck the camera up against the fence and took three pictures. At that time, there was no lights at all in the cemetery. And when I developed the pictures, in the one photo, there's a green beam of light hitting this above-ground crypt. And there's no reason for it, because there was no lights in the cemetery. And clear as a bell, standing in this beam of light is a woman. You can see her, but you can see through her. You can see her eyes, her face, the curl of her hair. And she's wearing a wedding dress with a half veil, very Spanish traditional wedding dress. And her face looks like a corpse. It looks like like the crypt keeper from the old tales from the crypt. So I'm going to like caught something on film here. And I started researching it. And the story is hundreds of people have seen this apparition with their own eyes. And they call her the bride because the story is this woman died a week before her wedding. And he buried her in her bridal gown. 
And that just right there sold me on St. Augustine. I'd go there every weekend and research the ghostly legends and stuff. And I've sat down with the chief of police, with the city council members, with a lot of the dignitaries of the city, and they all have ghost stories, every single one of them. Before the cemetery was here, this was the site of an early 18th century Franciscan Indian mission, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de Tolomato, or Our Lady of Guadalupe of Tolomato. The Native American group that lived at the mission had come down from Georgia and were known as the Guale. No one is sure where they got the name Tolomato, but it is believed to refer to a river from their home. They had been seeking refuge from attacks by rival tribes. After the French and Indian War, most of the Spanish citizens in the St. Augustine area left because the British took over. The Protestant Brits tore down the wooden Catholic church from the mission. They were expelled after the Revolutionary War, and the Spanish returned in 1784. Just prior to this, in 1777, a group of indentured servants from the Mediterranean, known as Menorcans, came to the Tolomato Mission seeking asylum, and after Father Pedro Camps petitioned the governor, the group was allowed to live at the mission. The grounds were used as a burial ground for the Menorcan colonists. A little background on the Menorcans is they were brought over by the Scottish doctor named Turnbull, who wanted them to work on an indigo plantation in New Smyrna Beach. They were treated very poorly and rebelled. The Tolomato Cemetery is the oldest planned cemetery in the United States. So since St. Augustine is our oldest city, that's why we have the oldest planned cemetery there. It was entirely a Catholic burial ground, and Protestants were not allowed to be buried there. Most burials took place from the 18th and 19th centuries, and this came to an end in 1884. The main reason for it closing was the belief that cemeteries were helping further the spread of yellow fever. At this time, they were unaware that it was the mosquito that was the vector. And kind of, Denise, how they used to think that the swamp gas was what would make everybody ill. And we had, of course, the plague doctors who had their masks with the little flowers in the end so that it would smell good. Everybody thought if it smells good and you're not near cemeteries and these decaying bodies, then you'll be okay. Now, while decaying bodies obviously are unhealthy, cemeteries are not. A diverse group of people are buried here in the Tolomato Cemetery, including the Spanish, Menorcans, Irish, Africans, Greeks, and Italians. There's slaves here, convicts, soldiers. It's just a plethora. Many individuals important to the history of Florida have found their final resting place here. The wife of Kingsley Gibbs, who owned the famous Kingsley Plantation, is buried here. And Catalina Yambias, who lived in one of the oldest houses in St. Augustine, was buried illegally here by her son. He was fined, but she was left at rest. So what he did is he snuck in because there was not supposed to be any more burials there, but she wanted to be buried there. So he put her in the ground and they decided to leave her. There's about a thousand recorded burials here. The old drugstore is right there, too, which is actually built over a site of an Indian burial ground. Talamato Cemetery itself sits on the site where the village was, and the drugstore sits on the site of the burial ground. In fact, uh, Talamato's headstone sits inside the drugstore. That's right. That's right. That Yes, you're right. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I'd wondered, I knew that there had been a mission there and that this village had been there. And I knew that they were using that as their burial ground, but I wasn't sure exactly where that burial ground had been. And the, and the people in the drugstores got got stories and I've talked to the owner of it. And I, I was going to give one of her employees a copy of my book, Breed, which is set in St. Augustine. And she's like, please don't. If you read anything about ghosts, this guy's going to quit because he's already nervous enough. <laughs> 
Well, all he's going to have to do is work there for a little bit and he'll be he'll know they're there. It's one of the few cities that you can walk down the street and you just you feel and I don't know if it's because it is so old, but you could just feel that it has spirits all about it. Exactly. And there's still, every time they, somebody digs in their backyard, they find bodies. You got to remember the Spanish that were here at the time. I mean, what a miserable place St. Augustine was. I mean, Florida in the 1500s, hot, humid, you know, and these people didn't want to be here. That's why a lot of them were buried above the ground. They didn't want to be in the earth here. They wanted to go home. This was not a club med back in those days. It was not a nice place. No, it certainly wasn't. And of course, we know the mosquitoes here are horrible. And back then, they brought death for sure. Yellow fever just swept through there. And that's why there's so many bodies just buried haphazardly because they just had to get them in the ground. Yeah, and there was a lot of Pretty mass much. graves and it was just crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I mean, one time I was at the government house museum and I was on the second floor with my wife, nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I'm talking about one of the exhibits. All of a sudden, very clear, very loud, somebody so I was like, whoa, I'm embarrassed. Somebody just shushed me. I was talking too loud. And we got to looking around. I was like, who the heck did that? We walked all the way through the second floor, and there was nobody in the place but us. I go back downstairs to the, to the front desk, and there's this elderly lady behind the counter. And I was like, excuse me, ma'am, I have a question. Was I talking too loud? And she's like, no. I said, you didn't just shush me? And she's like, no. I said, okay, I have a second question. I said, does anything strange ever happen here? And she got this little smile, and she pointed up, up, up above, and she said, all the time, second floor. So we got <laughs> shushed by a ghost on a Sunday morning in St. Augustine. Now, the other place is known for its reputation being haunted is the St. Francis Inn, which is the oldest bed and breakfast in St. Augustine. And there's a room called, it's room 3A, and it's supposedly haunted by the ghost of a black servant girl that named Lily. And the story is, back when it was a boarding house, the nephew of the owner fell in love with Lily. And they, that was a scandalous thing back in the 1800s. And they sent her away, and he hung himself in the attic, which later became 3A. So even though he hung himself, everybody, the people who have seen stuff, have seen her. And there's been people who, in the middle of the night, wake up, and there's this black woman standing next to him crying, and they check out and leave. So I, I put this in the, in, in the novel and, you know, I had a scene where somebody's having a conversation with Lily and my friends, I had done the book signing in St. Augustine and they wanted to see the St. Francis Inn. So I took them down there and I pointed out room 3A and the light was on in the room, but the shutters, the wooden shutters were closed. They go halfway up the window and they're on the inside of the glass. Well, my friends took a picture of the room anyway, and they used a digital camera and the picture clear as a bell has a woman, a black woman sitting in the window with a, uh, a turban around her head, and she's holding a black baby wrapped in a blanket. And, I mean, it's clear. It's amazing. So they caught a photo of Lily. But the fact that she's holding a baby puts a new twist in the story because I, we always wonder why it would be her ghost there if he's the one that hung himself. Well, she's sitting in the window holding this baby, and she looks like she's waiting for the father to come home. She obviously had his child. Wow. That is amazing. And like you said, that adds a little bit more to the story, and it makes you understand it a little bit more, why she would be wanting to hang out there. Exactly. And, you know, then you start wondering, was she sent away, or did something bad happen to her? Because for the nephew to have an interracial child back in those days Mm -hmm. in the South, that didn't happen. They may not have have just sent her away. They may have buried her. We don't know what happened to her. And probably that would be more likely the case. They, I don't think they would take the time to, to send somebody away so much. 
Yeah, they protect reputations of uh, people higher up in the business anarchy. You know, you, you just got to, you know, you got to think how how the situation was back in those days. I mean, this is back during the day of slavery and stuff. And, you know, black servants were considered more like livestock than they were like human beings. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing history. St. Augustine's got so many layers to it. I mean, and you, know, you got the British and it's changed hands so many times. British, the Spanish, the Americans, the British, it went back and forth for years. That is very true. The picture that you took in the cemetery, do you still have that? And if you catch me sometime locally at one of local events, let me know you're coming down. I'll show you the picture. I won't post it online, but I've showed a lot of people and some people get really creeped out when they see it because it's amazing. It really is. Well, and that's that's cool that you do it that way because unfortunately we know when people put stuff out on the internet, it's just not as believable because you're like, oh, did that get doctored? Did they Photoshop it? What have you. Well, I'm, you know, I'm 58 years old. I'm not smart enough or high tech enough to Photoshop anything. I didn't grow up in that judgment computers. It's like if somebody could have Photoshop it, it wouldn't be me. Cause I don't even know how to do it. I can barely turn my computer on. <laughs> we have the same problem too. I'm like, if if I take a picture of something and it looks like a ghost, then it probably was a ghost because I can't I can't doctor <laughs> that stuff. Yeah. But it's fascinating. Like I said, I've sat down with the chief of police. The fact that they got stories and they're all willing to tell them. But if you say, hey, I saw a ghost in St. Augustine, they don't look at you funny. And the nice thing about going up there that I always enjoyed is after 10 o'clock, the street's empty. All the tourists go back to their bed and breakfast and get all comfy for the night. And you got the whole place to yourself. And it really is creepy at nighttime. We were there one time. I was sitting at the fort. And I, nobody had ever said anything about a firing squad walk. And, and I actually was the one that started telling people about it. But I was sitting here and just kept getting this creepy feeling. And I turned and I noticed these holes in a straight line on the one wall. And it was like if you're at the, or the oven where they heat the cannonballs and look to your left, it's, it's right there. And it's very obvious. And I'm like, wait a minute. These are the size of musket balls. I'm like, oh, my God, this is where they executed people. This is a firing squad. I used to challenge the rangers, and at first they were like, no, no, that's not uh, a firing squad holes. Those are bullet holes. That's where seabirds all peck to build their nest. I'm like, wait a minute. It's chest level. It's a straight road. This is not nest for seabirds. Then they're like, they changed the story. And it's like, no, but at the end of the shift change, the Spanish soldiers would discharge their guns because they kept them loaded. I'm like, no, they wouldn't. They're not going to waste ammo and shoot their own fort up. So I started telling some of the tour guides up there about this, and they were like, they went over and checked it. I said, you're right. This looks like a firing squad. I mean, you know, I'm sure they executed people. They, it, it was a prison used for many years to house American Indians there. I mean, you know, yeah, I'm sure they did execute people there at that fort and buried them on the backside because you could still smell the gra- grave runoffs from the area. On that fact, you would be proud to know that we've been on about eight or nine ghost tours there, and every single tour guide at the fort has showed us the wall and told us the story. So there you go. Your legacy yeah. lives on. Yeah, back in back in the late '90s, nobody was saying it. And I've been on all the tours, and I'm like, why isn't anybody saying it? It's very obvious. So I told a few people, and I, and Karen Harvey, who basically invented the ghost tours up there, she was a reporter who first researched uh, St. Augustine and the history and the hauntings of it. And and Sandy Craig, who owns, uh, I think it's a Ghostly Adventure or, or this, it's Ghost Tour St. Augustine. She's like the first official ghost tour there. You know, they're the ones started. Everybody else copied from them. So, you know, I started adding, I said, look, you know, this is something you guys can talk about because these are definitely musket balls. I, I shoot black powder flintlock rifle in competition. So it was obvious what it was. I tell people, you know, I mean, when a spirit crosses over, that's going to be how it, how it was in life. I mean, you know, I, I'm waiting to cross over so I can come back and haunt my family. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. <laughs> well, that's what I'd be. I'd be pulling pranks, too. 
we had that at Greenwood one time. We were going to go out and do some uh, trimming of the azalea bushes. And I was with another person, a worker, and we had loaded the, the cart up with the tools and pulled around to the office. And he wanted to get a bottle of water. And he walks back out, walks to the back of the cart and picks up the gas can. We got a five-gallon gas can. It was a metal can. He picks it up off, off a brick road. He goes, you're just going to leave this here? I said, I didn't put it there. He, you must have. He said, no, I put it in the back of the cart by the tool room. I got to think it's sitting there. Somehow this gas can got out of the cart and ended up on the ground. But it's brick. It's a metal can. And not a sound was made. And it was sitting perfect. I said, like, that's, that's impossible. It couldn't have done that. Wow. So we're like, somebody's playing. Now, you've obviously had your experience there at the cemetery. And then at Greenwood Cemetery, you had experiences. Have you ever had any other kinds of experiences in other locations? Quite a few. I mean, it's, you know, something about my culture, and I guess because the Native people are more open to the belief of it, and a lot of spirits just want to basically communicate and let you know that they're there. When we had a, a bar in a restaurant in Georgia for six years, and it was on a street that it had bars for the last 50 years, and, you know, you'd hear things, see things, customers would pass on, and they, they, they were continuing partying. Uh, in Savannah, one time, we went up and did the, the tour through Savannah, and we went to the, the pirate uh Pirate Cafe, Pirate Restaurant, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be haunted. We were going to have lunch there, but it smelled really bad. So I'm not, I didn't really trust the seafood. And there was myself, my wife, and another couple. And the other couple, we, when we walked out of the place, they're walking in front of us. My wife and I are walking behind them. And as we leave the restaurant, walking down the sidewalk, clear as a bell, we heard somebody walking behind us. And we didn't think nothing of it. you know. And they got closer and closer. They were moving at a faster pace than us. My wife and I, without even looking back, both stepped off the sidewalk at the same time to let this person pass. There was nobody there. So we're like, ooh, okay. And that's how you know you but experienced it. it. Yes. You know, I hadn't said a word to her. She stepped to the left. Mm-hmm. I stepped to the right. Our friend stopped. Like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, we were letting somebody pass, we thought. And there's nobody there. <laughs> well, at least they didn't push you. <laughs> exactly. Well, Owl, I want to thank you for sharing your experiences with us. How can people find out more about you and uh, your work? I have a a website, which is owlgoingback.com. I also have a Facebook page, finally, after six years of fighting. They they didn't believe my name was real, and they wanted me to scan my driver's license, which I didn't have a scanner at the time, but they gave a page to Sasquatch, and I don't think Bigfoot has a driver's license. (laughs) What was this? The invention of smartphones, I finally thought, hey, I could take a picture and send it to you, right? They're like, yeah, that's fine. So I do have a Facebook page. I am on Twitter. I mean, I'm pretty much out there everywhere. If you come down to Central Florida, I, I'm, I do a lot of events down here. I will be at Spooky Empire's Ultimate Horror Weekend in October. I will be at uh, Orlando Book Festival in July at the Orlando Library. So, yeah, I'm pretty much everywhere right now. Well, very cool. We might see you at Spooky Empire. We're looking forward to that. It's a great festival. It's a lot of fun. It really is. Well, thanks again for joining us, and you have a fabulous evening. You too. It's very nice talking to you. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. And to back up our going back story about the woman in white, there is a story of two young boys who decided to camp in the cemetery about 100 years ago. They pitched their tent among the tombstones and went to bed. They were awakened in the middle of the night by a strange sound. They pulled back the flap of the tent and saw a woman who was glowing in a white dress hovering near their tent. They couldn't see her face, but they saw that she had long gray hair. They ran for their lives. When they told the townspeople what they had seen, a man remarked that he believed that the ghost belonged to a young woman who had died of a heart weakness one week before she was to be married. 
and she was buried in her wedding dress. In the middle of the cemetery is a cute little mortuary chapel, and it once used to house the bones of Father Verea and Bishop Verote. It's believed that both of these men haunt the cemetery, even though Father Verea was relocated to Cuba. Bishop Verat had his bones moved to the center of the cemetery. And then the most famous ghost here belongs to little James Morgan. He was the son of E and Agnes Morgan and was only five at the time of his death in 1877. The circumstances of his death are unknown. He seems to favor this large live oak that's near the front of the cemetery's gate, and he likes to sit up in it, and that's where people have seen him many times. He's also been seen running about the tombstones, but mostly he's in the boughs of this tree. And Which I've is why your hostess, <laughs> Diane, one time on a tour, we're sitting there, and the tour group had moved down a little ways, and I was taking some pictures, and all of a sudden I heard her saying to the tree, hi, are you there? Do you want to come say hi? I'm like, what are you doing? So she was once again, tempting the spirits. I just wanted to say hi to James. <laughs> Needless to say, he didn't appear. And if you guys want to get a look at the Tolomato Cemetery, Denise and I put together a walking tour of Cordova Road up there in St. Augustine. And along this road is the Tolomato Cemetery. And so we walk past the outside of it. We tell you these stories that we just shared with you here and, and show you what the tree looks like. So if you want to check that out on YouTube, just... Look under our page, History Goes Bump, and search for St. Augustine Walking Tour, Cordova Road Walking Tour, something like that, and you'll be able to find it. Well, that was really cool having Owl join us. Really appreciated having him. Yes, very much so. Our next cemetery for this episode is the Unitarian Churchyard in Charleston, South Carolina, and we can't think of a better person to share this with us than tour guide extraordinaire and host of the Pleasing Terrors podcast, Mike Brown. How are you, Mike? Pretty good. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, we're thrilled to have you on the show. As you know, we are huge fans of both your ghost tour and the podcast, and Denise actually finally got to listen to, I think you heard almost every episode on our road trip. We did a definite binge at the beginning of the road trip. We were just one right after another while we were driving in the car. So it was fun. Well, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed seeing all the photos. It felt like I was on a virtual vacation myself. <laughs> well, Mike, since we were talking about your ghost tour and your podcast, why don't you share a little bit about yourself and both of those uh, things that you're involved with? Well, I've been a, a tour guide in Charleston for uh, 22 years, and I've been doing a ghost tour there for about 19 years now. And uh, on the ghost tour, we visit haunted library and a haunted restaurant, and we go by a number of graveyards. Uh, Charleston has a lot of really great ghost stories, and of course, it's just full of history. So it's just a perfect combination for a ghost tour. So it's something that I really enjoy doing. And uh, uh, last year it was when I started the podcast. And that was just uh, an opportunity to kind of take what I'd been doing on the tour and get out of Charleston and, and talk about some other places that had always fascinated me. And uh, I have to say, I've really been enjoying doing it. It's, it's really interesting to get to research locations and different places around the country and, and learn some of the stories there that I, I'm not familiar with. Well, I've told you before that you're an excellent storyteller. A lot of the stories that you share on the podcast, I've heard little bits about it before, but it's just the way that you tell it. I still find myself getting creeped out, even though I know what's <laughs> going to happen. Well, uh, for me, that's the highest compliment when someone tells me they got creeped out by one of the stories. 
Do you have a favorite episode that you've done? Strangely enough, my first episode, I think, is still one of my favorites. The Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles and uh, the Elisa Lamb story. And I just, I love the way that sort of neatly folded in with the Red Riding Hood fairy tale. That's always remained one of my favorites. That's awesome. I think one of the craziest ones you've done is overnighting at the old Charleston jail. Oh, yes. Yes, that was... That was a very intense evening, especially being there alone. That really, uh, you know, it's amazing how much of a difference that makes. Even if you would, if I would have just had one more person with me, I, I think I would have been a lot more comfortable than I was there that night. And we may have thought you a bit more sane as well. <laughs> yeah, I was like, but I definitely. No way. Uh, well, I definitely could hear Denise on my shoulder saying, don't tempt the spirits. And I was completely breaking that rule that night. <laughs> yes. And being creeped out because of it. Just saying. <laughs> we walked by that place. I was across the street with Tiana and it freaked me out being across the street just looking at it. There is no way I would be spending the night by myself in the total darkness in that place. Uh-uh. No. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that I learned when I was researching it is that's on purpose. It was actually designed architecturally to give that feeling to people when they saw it. It was supposed to be scary and intimidating. They thought that that would keep people from committing crimes. I don't think that really worked. But the scary and intimidating part, certainly, you can feel it. What's interesting is this afternoon I was looking back at some old episodes and binging and Ghost Brothers went into the old Charleston jail and that's the one I watched this afternoon and I was watching them walking around and of course you never know if what you're seeing on there, you know, is it staged or is it something that really happened? But I thought the whole time I'm watching it, I'm going, Mike was walking around that place all by himself. I would be terrified just to be the three of them and the cameraman running around and he was doing it by himself during a thunderstorm. Yes, <laughs> for, for perfect dramatic effect. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a night. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you come on and talk about the Unitarian Churchyard is, number one, it has a connection to Edgar Allan Poe, who's one of my favorite authors. And uh -huh. the other reason is because whenever you hear about a supernatural occurrence or something paranormal, it's a lot easier to buy into it when you're skeptical if it's been something that has had multiple people have experienced it or seen it. And on your ghost tour, you've had some weird stuff happen to people who are on the ghost tour outside of this cemetery. People say that, oh, that cemetery's haunted or that cemetery's haunted all the time. But based on the stories that you tell about this, I can believe that there is something going on there. So will you tell us a little bit about the cemetery and how it has this connection to Edgar Allan Poe? Well, the Unitarian Graveyard is part of something called the Gateway Walk. And the, the graveyard itself dates back to the late 1700s. And it is a very unusual looking graveyard because it's not maintained the way we would normally expect a graveyard to be maintained. It is densely overgrown. It, you walk in there and it look it always reminds me of that movie The Secret Garden because oh, sure. it is it looks like this walled-in space that no one has been in in a hundred years. You know, it is filled with gnarled trees and leaning tombstones and Spanish moss. It looks exactly like a movie set. It, it really does. And it, in the daytime, it looks like that. And at night, that effect is just magnified many times over. And the 
the graveyard sits at the back of this very long alleyway. And the alleyway is part of something called the Gateway Walk, which dates from the 1930s. It's a series of pathways that run in between the streets and in between the buildings, connecting graveyards all the way over on Church Street to the Unitarian Graveyard over on off of King Street and in between King Street and Archdale Street. So it's, a, it's about a two to three block area. And one section of the Gateway Walk, which has a gateway that's right there on King Street and goes back down this long alleyway to the graveyard is where I tend to have things happen a lot of the time. And it's something that really started in August of 2013. I'd been going there for years prior to that. And there had been some incidents, but for the most part, the incidents prior to 2013 had occurred in the graveyard itself. After August of 2013, it's most of what I've noticed seems to be happening out on the street, literally at the gateway uh, that would lead back to the graveyard. And in August of 2013, I was there with a tour group. And for me, it was just another night. There was nothing extraordinary about it at first. And we stepped in front of the gate and one of the ladies in the tour group just collapsed on the sidewalk. And it's August, so my initial thought was not that something supernatural was happening. It's that it's August, and it's hot, and probably something to do with that. So the people in this tour group, it was a church choir, so it was a big group. They were all together. And the people in the tour group helped this lady across the street to some steps, and they set her down. And after a minute, she seems to be okay. And as soon as she has her wits about her, she points at the gate across the street, and she says, what's in there? And then she went on to explain that in the past she had been sensitive to what she called spirits. And she said that whatever she felt behind the gate was so powerful that it just overwhelmed her and and she basically passed out. And that was the first incident. And then it didn't happen again in 2013 and it didn't happen at all in 2014. So I assumed that it was just this isolated, weird incident, and I didn't think much of it. But then in 2015, it happened four times on tour, where we stepped across the street and someone just passed out or almost passed out, you know, or became sick. And they would be fine as soon as they would walk away from the gate. They would be okay, but it, it, right in front of that gate, it would, it would happen. And then again, last year, it happened in January. It happened again in July. In September, two guys... In the, on the same tour group, almost passed out at the same time. One of the guys I'd noticed, he was, he'd got dropped down on his knees. And I, I thought, you know, maybe his back was hurting him or something. But it turns out, he, he said after I finished the story, that he, he thought he was going to pass out. And then finally, in December, I stepped over there at the beginning of December with a tour group. And one of the ladies in the group became violently ill. And she walked back across the street and she was fine, but she couldn't stand in front of the gate. And then at the end of December, I stepped over there with another tour group and one of the ladies in the group just stood there for a moment. And then without saying anything, she turned and walked a block down to the next intersection and she just waited there until she saw us leave the gate. And then she caught back up to the tour and she said that she could feel something in there and she didn't want to be any closer to it. And so far this year, in 2017, it hasn't, I haven't had anything quite so dramatic yet, but over the past week, basically three nights in a row, I have had people on the tour say that they could feel it and that they would feel their heart rate increasing and that they felt like maybe they might pass out, but, but they weren't quite there yet. They didn't really hit them 
full force. So, I mean, it's just the sheer volume of incidents and then the consistency of them. Uh, it, it's hard to, to find a, an explanation for it. And especially because it's something that isn't really well known about it. So it's not like they're just saying, oh, this is where people usually pass out. So I'm going to get all dramatic about it. And I'm assuming that most people probably are a little embarrassed that it's happened to them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's that's usually the first reaction once they've sort of come out of it is that they're completely embarrassed about the whole thing. I, I just don't know. I don't know how to explain it. And it, and it keeps happening. And it, it again, it's just it's all it's all seems very consistent, you know, across groups of people that don't know each other, have no connection to each other. And it's always in the same exact place. It would, you know, it'd be different if it was happening at various places on the tour, but it's, it's always that one spot. Now, do these people all say that they are, you are usually sensitive to energy or spirits or is it just random? No, a lot of times, some of them, I think, some of them have said, yes, we, I'm, I'm sensitive to this kind of stuff. Others, I think, may be sensitive to it, but don't really know, or, or they haven't really conceptualized it, you know, to that extent. They, they, they're not aware, necessarily, that they're that sensitive to it. Um, and it's interesting, because, you know, while giving the tour, as I'm talking, a lot of times I can just tell, with, before they say anything, you can just see that there's somebody in the tour group that was right up at the front of the group prior to that, you know, was listening to the stories, was really engaged. And then we get in front of that gate and all of a sudden they're moving backwards and they're trying to get back away from the gate. And I can see that they're not looking at me and that they seem distracted. You can almost see it happening. I, I guess it's happened enough now that I'm, I've gotten to where I can sort of recognize sort of the onset of it. What's so interesting about this is you're talking about an energy that is powerful enough I'm assuming it's drawing energy off those people and that's why they're passing out because it's sapping their strength or something. And it's like, what in the world has the kind of strength that it can just reach out? And you guys are on the other side of a gate. It's not like you're standing in the middle of the cemetery at the time that it's reaching out to there and like just sucking it through that gate. Yeah. And, the, and the, it's not the gate to the actual graveyard either. I mean, it, there is almost a block long alleyway between where we are and where the graveyard is. So that's how far out the, this effect is, is being felt. And I don't feel it myself, but I, I've never thought of myself as being particularly sensitive. Um, you really have to put me alone inside a place like the old city jail before I start feeling anything. There, I seem to be fairly immune to it, but some of the people on the tour group not necessarily are that lucky. So who reputedly haunts this Unitarian graveyard? Well, there have been some incidents in the graveyard itself going all the way back to the early 1990s. You know, back in the 1990s, especially the early to mid-1990s, they, they did not lock the graveyard at night. It was open pretty much all the time. And people would, would walk through there. Sometimes they would walk through there just going home. There was a an antique dealer on King Street who was heading home one night, and he lived on the next street over on the other side of the graveyard. And I think he had decided that particular night that he wanted to walk through the graveyard and smoke a cigarette as he was heading home. And he got into the middle of the graveyard when he said that he saw a woman standing on the pathway, and it was a woman in a white dress. And he said that she was there for a moment, and then she was gone. And then the incidents have continued beyond that. I had a, uh, in the early 2000s, well, before even I started having an incident there, there's another tour guide that I'm friends with who had an incident happen. He went there, and it was actually a fairly early part of the evening. It was 
I think, 5.30 in the evening. And he had gotten there. And at that point, they had already started locking the graveyard at night, but the gates were still open that early. And so he took his tour group into the graveyard. And he's standing in there talking to them. And he notices that no, people aren't paying attention to him. They're looking at something behind him. And he turns around to see what it is. And there's a woman in a white dress walking through the graveyard. And she steps behind one of the larger monuments. It's like a mini, mini obelisk. And she doesn't come out the other side. It's just she steps behind it and she's gone. And three of the people in the group run over to the obelisk and there's no one there. And the tour guide was so disturbed by the incident that he actually quit giving ghost tours and just started giving history tours in the daytime because he didn't want to have anything to do with the graveyard anymore. Wow. And he said that one of the things that really bothered him about it was that the woman was staring at him specifically the whole time and that she didn't really seem to be focused on anyone else in the group, just him. And that really bothered him. Yeah, that would be freaky. And then there was in 2006, I had an incident occur on one of my ghost tours. And at, and at that point, they had already started to lock the graveyard at night, but the alleyway that leads from the street to the graveyard, they would leave open. And so what I used to do then is I would tell the story out on the street, and then I would walk the group down this dark alley to the gate that enters the graveyard, and I would shine a flashlight through the bars of the gate, and people would come up and take a look, and then we would all walk back out. And this is something that I had done at least a hundred times before that particular night. And that night we get back there and I'm have, I have my back to the gate and I'm talking to the group and I pull out my flashlight and there are two ladies standing next to me looking through the bars, but, but it's very dark. And so I click on the flashlight and shine it through the bars and the two ladies standing next to me start screaming and scared me worse than anyone. I dropped my flashlight and it was just chaos there for a minute. But after everyone calmed down, we asked the ladies what had happened and they said that when I'd shined the light through the bars, there was a woman inside the graveyard just on the other side of the gate. And so that was that was prior to my night in the jail. That was my closest personal encounter or closest thing to a, a ghost encounter. Now, who do they think this woman is and what is her connection to Edgar Allan Poe? Well, the belief is that she is a woman by the name of Annabelle Lee Ravenel, or maybe I should say a girl by the name of Annabelle Lee Ravenel. The Ravenel family is a, a big family in Charleston, and, and it's been in Charleston. They're French, they were French Huguenot immigrants originally, and they came to Charleston in the late 1600s, and they became one of the very prominent families in the city. There is a, a house that's connected to the Ravenel family that's right next to where I start the ghost tour, which has been in the family for over 200 years. So it, it's also one of the few families that maintains a connection to one of their original homes. The story goes that in the 1820s, specifically, I think it was 1828, uh, there was a teenage daughter in that family, Annabelle Lee Ravenel, and she became romantically involved with a young soldier who was stationed at Fort Moultrie. And she, the soldier was 18 years old, and he was, he was a soldier by the name of Edgar A. Perry. And he was from Richmond, Virginia, and had dropped out of college and joined the army and was stationed at Fort Moultrie, but would have a lot of time to come into town. And one of the things that he was interested in doing while he was in town was going through old newspapers to try to find information about his parents because he was adopted. 
and he was looking for information about his parents having visited Charleston because his parents were actors and they had performed here on numerous occasions. And it was while he was looking for them that in one of those newspapers that he found a piece of poem that someone had written into the local newspaper called The Mourner. And that poem would uh, later on have a very strong resemblance to the poem Annabelle Lee. He became friends at some point with a doctor by the name of Edmund Ravenel, who was uh, a conchologist. He collected shells, and he had a shack out there on Sullivan's Island close by Fort Moultrie, and the two became acquainted. And uh, it's through that connection that he most likely met uh, this teenage girl, Annabelle Lee. And they began seeing each other, and the family was not thrilled with this because this, you know, in, in Charleston at that time especially, someone from a prominent family like that was expected to marry someone else from another prominent family. Sure. Not this penniless, you know, soldier who was an adopted, you know, a, an orphan essentially. And he was an enlisted soldier. And, you know, it's hard for us to think of term in this in this way, but enlisted men in peacetime in the 1820s, that was not an, an occupation that was viewed with any sort of pride or uh, people they looked at soldiers differently in peacetime in the 1820s than we do now. And they, an enlisted person who was not an immigrant, especially was considered to be something of a freeloader who was living off the government because he couldn't get a real job. That's how harsh they were about enlisted service at that time. So this family was not crazy about this guy at all. And they forbade them from seeing each other, but teenagers being teenagers, they started sneaking around. And one of the places that they were said to meet was in the seclusion of that graveyard, which was a graveyard where members of her mother's family, the Lee family, were buried. There's actually a very large section of that graveyard portioned off for the Lee family. And I guess maybe she would go there under the pretense that she was going to visit some of her mother's relatives and they would meet. And eventually they got caught. Her room was searched and supposedly a wedding dress was found. And they realized that these two were making plans to run away and get married. And so she was basically confined to the house and not allowed out into the city. And he was more or less confined to Sullivan's Island, where Fort Moultrie is located, so that the two of them would have, have make it very difficult for them to meet each other. And it's at some point after that that she became ill. They think with yellow fever and she passed away. And according to the story, her last wish was to be allowed to be buried in that graveyard wearing her dress. That is thought to be the, the woman in the dress that's been seen there. The, the punchline at the end of the story, I almost forgot, is that that soldier who later transferred out of Charleston and left the army also eventually when he left the army left behind the fake name that he had enlisted under edgar a perry and went back to using his actual name edgar allen poe and interestingly enough poe tried to keep the fact that he had ever been in the army and that he had ever been in charleston a secret he made up stories about visiting europe to cover for the fact that he had ever been here and that he had ever been in the army but it was in the 1880s that a, a biographer who was doing some research into Poe's history, discovered the fact that Edgar Poe was actually also Edgar Perry and that he had been here in the Army. And that's just amazing because that is not something that's really well known out there. And I think the first time I'd heard that was when we were doing the tour with you. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. 
Yeah, it's this sort of little-known chapter in Edgar Allan Poe's life. And it's one right before he really starts to take writing seriously. I think he had published one book of poetry prior to that, which had not really sold at all. And it's interesting, too, because his earlier work there as a teenager before he ever joins the army and comes to Charleston, it's not nearly so dark as what follows. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to wonder if experiences like he had, you know, his experiences like he'd had with his family, experiences like he had had here in Charleston, if those weren't in some way contributing to the sort of dark turn that his imagination would take as his writing career progressed. I have no doubt about it. And when you hear stories like this, this is like the Romeo and Juliet where the families are keeping them away from each other and how heartbreaking that must be. When you're a teenager, you think this is the greatest love of my life. I'll never find anything like this again. And so it must have just been horrific for them. And then to have her die on top of it would just be the final nail in the coffin. And I think this is your episode number nine that you titled The Mourner's Curse. And the way you tell it, it just brings you in and just wraps you up in that story. And you just feel the pain that he must have felt. We don't know if necessarily the energy drain is coming from her spirit or something else that's going on there. But you could see why she might be angry and there might be something going on there that way. You know, and something else that I I didn't really mention in the episode itself, but something that I've wondered about, too, is, and and I'm sure you've probably talked about this on numerous occasions, is when you talk about poltergeist activity, and this is something I I mentioned, uh, I think, in the Bell Witch episode that I did, was uh, when you're talking about poltergeist activity and the possibility, especially with a connection to teenage girls, and how there seems to be this sort of potent connection this powerful sort of psychic connection sometimes with teenage girls and that sort of activity. And then you have this story where you have a girl who's right at that age and dies under these tragic circumstances. And I wonder if that explains the the magnitude of what people are sensing in that graveyard. That's a really good theory. I hadn't thought about when somebody's died at that age if their spirit would have the same effect as they do living as adolescents, because we do hear that a lot, that poltergeist activity seems to take place around these girls and sometimes boys as well that are going through puberty and such. And so, I don't know, that's a great theory. That's very possible. It's And it's not consistent, I will say that. I have had people that have come on the tour and passed out in front of the gate and left the tour at that point, <laughs> and then have come back on another tour <laughs> because they wanted to finish it. Mm-hmm. which I don't know if I would do, but they did. And uh, and they didn't have any problems the second time. They were fine. And so it's I, my observation over the years, just watching these types of things happen on the tour, is that I think a lot of times you have to have the right person at the right place at the right time. And that, that it's a conjunction of those three factors. And then you have the possibility or maybe even the probability of, of an incident occurring. But if one of those factors is off, if it's the right place and the right person, but it's just not the right time, then there's nothing happens. And uh, I, I, that's, that's been my observation over the years anyways. Wow. Do you have a favorite place in Charleston that you like, that's like your favorite place there? Well, that graveyard certainly would be one of them. It's just such a, it's such a, you know, it's, I've, we're, I'm painting this sort of creepy picture of it, but it is, it's also so beautiful when you go in there. It's just extraordinarily beautiful. I would say that the, the Unitarian graveyard is definitely one of my favorite places. The, the most afraid I've ever been, obviously, was inside the old city jail. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, <laughs> and that's just because I was there all by myself. <laughs> Which I think would do it to anybody. <laughs> yes. Well, you take such great pictures. Uh, Mike is always posting up on Facebook before he's hosting one of his tours. He'll take a really, sometimes they're ominous, sometimes they're just beautiful night pictures. But I just love the way you set up some of those pictures and the photographs that you take. It just makes you go, ooh, it looks so eerie there, even though, like you said, it is a beautiful city. And that's the one place out of all the places that we've been around the country and in the world where we saw lots and lots of dolphins and we never expected that. Yeah, that was fun. Well, you know, the reason I started taking those pictures is that I get to see this side of Charleston at night that a lot of people don't get to see. And it's such a beautifully creepy place at night. And even most of the people that live here don't get to see it. It's just so I I just started taking these little snapshots and posting them just because I wanted to kind of share what the Charleston that I get to experience every night looks like. I'm, I'm really happy that people have enjoyed seeing them. It works. It definitely works. Cause it, and then it makes us go, God, I wish we were there. Well, Mike, thank you so much for agreeing to come on with us and to share that wonderful story. I just see the way you tell it, both in the tour and on your podcast. I was like, you know, we're going to be doing haunted cemeteries here. And that's one I definitely want to do. And we got to have Mike on to share it. Absolutely. Well, I, thank you so much for having me on the show. All right. Well, you have a great night, Mike. You too. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. It was so much fun to get to talk to Mike again. It was. It was really fun just chatting and talking about something that we we both love is the cemeteries and Charleston. And we are hoping to get to see him again when we do our road trip next year, going through Charleston. We're going to try to stop maybe for an evening, so we might be able to do a ghost tour with him again. And you can find out more about Mike at PleasingTerrors.com. Or if you just put Pleasing Terrors into any search, you can find his podcast and more about his tours. And Mike messaged me a couple weeks ago and let me know that the first fainting spell for 2017 occurred on his tour. So they are continuing even now. Yeah, so when we do your tour with you again, Mike, I might kind of just stay back when we get close to the cemetery. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get anywhere near the cemetery now. Before, I was like peering through the fence and everything. And now, finally, we have Bachelors Grove Cemetery, which was requested by Christy Konopasik, and I hope I said that last name right. Before Bachelors Grove came to be known as the most haunted cemetery in America, there was a settlement here that was founded in the late 1820s. These settlers arrived from Scotland, Ireland, and Germany. It would be the Germans who would predominantly move to the area after the 1840s, and it would remain that way until 1900. Bachelors Grove was located 20 miles south of Chicago in Illinois. All of the wooded places in the area took on the names of the families that lived near them, which included Walker's Grove, Gooding's Grove, Cooper's Grove, and Blackstone's Grove. Thus, Bachelors Grove got its name from the Bachelor family, who came to the Rich Township in 1845. There are some who claim that the name is because four single men settled there, but the name was in use before those men arrived. A man named Stephen Rexford established the first post office in the vicinity as Bachelors Grove in 1843. And originally the name on all of the maps where it's platted out is spelled as B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R. And today now it's just like a bachelor, regular bachelor, so... Rexford was very involved with the organizing of the town. Bachelors Grove encompassed areas in northwest Bremen Township, northeast Orland Township, southwest Worth Township, and southeast Palos Township. 
Bachelors Grove Cemetery was established in 1844 with the burial of Eliza Scott. This makes the cemetery one of the oldest cemeteries in South Cook County. It covers approximately one acre across from the Rubio Woods Forest Preserve on 143rd Street just east of Ridgeland Avenue. The property had belonged to Edward M. Everden, and he sold it to Frederick Schmidt, who set aside the acre for the graveyard. Many of the early settlers from the area were buried here. To arrive at the cemetery, one has to travel down a trail close to traffic. This was originally part of the old Midlothian Turnpike in the 1960s. The last burial took place in 1989 and was the cremated remains of Robert E. Shields. Cemetery is now under the supervision and responsibility of the cemetery trustees under the Real Estate Management Office of the Cook County Board. Around the time that the turnpike was shut down, teenagers started using the graveyard as a hangout for making out and drinking parties. The cemetery suffered extensive vandalism and rumors of satanic rituals have plagued its modern-day history. The defacing of the property accelerated in the 1970s and many headstones ended up in the quarry pond. The once beautiful park was now a wreck, no longer suitable for the family picnics that took place there decades before. Could the mistreatment of this once peaceful cemetery have led to it becoming haunted? Tales of things happening here range from the mundane to the truly terrifying. There are reports of strange orbs of blue and red lights and phantom cars that appear and disappear. There are those that claim that a ghost house makes occasional appearances. This house is seen in all kinds of weather conditions. When people approach the house, it seems to get smaller and smaller and then finally just fades away. And there are many reports of apparitions, some of which have been caught on film. There is the picture of the Madonna of Bachelors Grove. There's the picture of the Madonna of Bachelors Grove. This picture was captured by the Ghost Research Society, GRS, on August 10, 1991. GRS member Jude Fells took several black and white photos with a high-speed infrared camera. When the pictures were developed, the image of the Madonna emerged. She was a young woman who appeared to be wearing a white dress, looking down in a forlorn manner and sitting on a tombstone. She is partially transparent, and the dress is dated in its style. So again, here we have Our Lady in White, Denise. The GRS was the first group to really start documenting sightings of the woman in white. She was seen walking among the tombstones, sometimes cradling a baby. Other times she looks like she's searching for something, so maybe she's looking for the baby. And in this picture that was taken of her, there is no baby in her arms. The president of GRS was Dale Kismarek, and he said, quote, A woman in white with a baby in her arms was also reported by local officers, and at first they never repeated the story of their sightings because they thought they'd be laughed at by their friends and colleagues, end quote. The pond behind the cemetery has its own legend as well. In the 1870s, a farmer was plowing a nearby field when something startled his horse. The reins tangled about the farmer, and he was dragged by the horse for several feet until the frightened animal ended up in the small pond. The farmer was pulled beneath the surface and drowned as he was unable to free himself. One night in the late 1970s, two Cook County Forest Preserve officers who were patrolling the cemetery claimed to see the apparition of a horse emerge from the pond. The horse had a plow behind it, and that plow was being steered by the ghost of an old man. The complete apparition crossed the road in front of the startled eyes, and then it vanished as it entered the forest. They reported the incident, and they have not been the only ones to see it. Are these four cemeteries harboring more than just the remains of the dead? 
Do spirits still wander among the tombstones? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, we've been to three of them. We haven't had any experiences at those three, but pretty interesting stuff. And we know a lot of our listeners really love cemeteries too, so you're probably looking forward to us bringing more of these to you in the future. We also had Tammy from the Spooktacular crew suggest an idea for a shirt that we've been working on. So probably a couple days after this episode is published, we should have available in the Emporium a shirt that says, I seek dead people. I am a taphophile. And there's a little tombstone on it. So we've been working that up. So that's another shirt available to those of you who are taphophiles out there and want to wave that quote unquote freak flag freely. On our next episode, we are going to be featuring the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, and we're going to be joined by one of our listeners, Bridget Schlack, who worked out there for years. And she's going to share all about the different things that are held there at the museum and a little bit of the history there and a lot about the hauntings that go on there. There's a lot of spirits messing around on that property, it seems. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did hear from Jules on the Spook Crew. I want to send an official howdy and thanks to you for being such a welcoming and supportive group. I feel like I found some good friends. So I thought I'd share with you an odd experience I had at work today. To set the scene, I work in the back office of the HR department at an Indian casino on a local reservation. Belief in and talk of the spirit is generally more acceptable with people there. So over the years, I've been able to talk openly to folks about paranormal things without feeling that I might be judged negatively for even entertaining the notion it might be real. Most days, I'm the first one in the office. Quite a while ago, I began the practice of saying hello when I'd get to the back office area on the off chance there was anyone in there, including a spirit, and have never had a response. Today was different. I could have sworn I heard my name in a very tiny, hushed voice in response to my greeting. Sorry to end the story abruptly, but that's the end. Nothing else happened. If I worked somewhere else, that probably would have freaked me out, but not there. I was very relaxed, but was anxious to share it with somebody. I wanted to share it with the spectacular crew. Very cool. And Lori also shared something in the spook crew. I had something definitely odd happen to me the other day at work. Little background first. I work at a major airport moving planes around the AOA ramp or plane area. We, my team, move them from gate to gate, gate to a maintenance pad to be worked on and back to the gate when ready. The other day we were getting ready to move a plane from the maintenance pad to a gate when I heard a dinging sound coming from the back of the plane. I was in the cockpit of the plane and was the only person on the plane. I went back to investigate. It was the flight attendant call button on an individual seat. I turned it off and shrugged it off. I went back to the cockpit to continue the move, and when we got to the gate a short ways away, the call button came on again and dinged continually until I turned the plane off. Remember, I was the only person on the plane at this time. Not sure if it was a faulty switch or there really was someone else I couldn't see. But it was a first and definitely odd. Creepy stories. Thanks for sharing those. Yes, thank you. 
And then I did something really stupid, Denise. On our last episode, we featured the Old South Pittsburgh Hospital, and Christopher Justice had suggested the location to us, and he had emailed me his own personal story about there that I was going to include in the episode. And, you know, I have my brain going in 10 different directions, so I was going back through emails today and went, oh, crud, I forgot to throw that in, so I'm going to share it now. He said, I would like to share an experience with you that I had at OSPH. Melanie and two other ladies were in the third floor nursery doing a session and I told them I was going to go sit down somewhere quiet. I went to OR1 in the darkest and farthest corner to sit as an LPOP military term for listening post, observation post, even though I could not see my hand in front of my face. I sat as absolutely quiet as I could, even trying to keep my heart rate and breathing as low as possible. About five to ten minutes into me sitting there, I heard clear audible footsteps outside the door. My first thought was, great, someone is coming up here and everything is ruined. I don't see a single light, though. Not a camera light, flashlight, cell phone light, absolutely no light. It was about 15 to 20 steps, the whole hallway. Ghost hunters and all them shows with three-foot steps have nothing on this one. Ha ha. Immediately after the footsteps, I jumped up to investigate. No one was there. I went around the corner around OR 2 and 3, labor and delivery, to the three girls, and I asked them, had they moved? And they hadn't. I then immediately cleared room by room the entire third floor to find nothing but us up there. I then went downstairs to the guy that was sitting at the nurse's station at the bottom of the steps, and he said that nobody had come down the stairs for 45 minutes besides me. After I got back upstairs, we then tried to recreate the situation. I sat in my corner, closed my eyes, and asked Melanie to walk around so I could see where these footsteps were. I finally heard exactly what I heard before and told Melanie to stop and asked where she was. She peeked around the corner of the door into where I was sitting. I was like a kid in a candy store jumping up and down with excitement to find out that the footsteps I had heard walked right past me and I had seen absolutely no light at all, pitch black. I know there is something there very intelligent that didn't want to communicate with the girls but was curious if they were still there and was trying to sneak around the back way to peek at them. I have many, many more experiences to share, but we'll leave it at that one for now. We have some reviews to share with everybody. The first one is from Deke7997, standing ovation from my mind, theater of the mind, five stars. So I guess I think I'm funny. <laughs> I love this podcast. The information and places chosen are fresh and don't seem overdone. I like the factual delivery of the information before getting into the subjective matter of the podcast. I've started listening in an interesting way. I listened to the first one, then skipped to the third or fourth one to get past the audio issues. Now I listen to the new ones and then go back to the older ones and listen in order. Eventually, I'll probably meet in the middle. That way, I get the experience of the new format as well as the archived content. And I actually suggest for people to do that. It's a great idea. Love the moment oddity and this day in history segments. I do like the interviews, but think the episodes with just Diane and Denise have a certain charm and flow as well. Well, then you're happy with everything that we do because we like to mix it up around here. That's one thing I like about our podcast, Denise. People really never know what they're going to get. Are we going to have somebody on with us? It's just going to be you and me. What are we going to talk about? I like the variety. Yes, and you never know what's going to come out of my mouth. So that's always good. Lord knows that for sure. And then we have Crut D. So entertaining five stars. I found the podcast a month or so ago and can't stop listening. I really enjoy the odd history stories as well as the history of interesting areas around the country. The funny banter between the two fabulous hosts is a plus. Thank you both so much for keeping my commute spooky. You are very welcome. And finally, Bella5811, History and Hauntings, five stars. Don't know why I haven't taken the time to leave a review sooner. Sorry, ladies. I'm a big fan of this show. Diane and Denise deliver well-researched history and folklore with terrific scary stories intertwined with some of the best history tales on any podcast. They have fun with this, and it makes listeners have fun, too. 
My favorite episodes are when they're on the road and sharing their own experiences visiting haunted historic sites. Love being a part of the Spooktacular crew. Well, thank you. And we're so glad that you joined the Spooktacular crew. We are almost up to a thousand members in there, Denise. I think we're four away right now. Yes, we're really, really close. Want to thank you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Bonnie Galtney. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.